we uh, got together on Friday night with some of our men, and we talked about some of the issues that men deal with in this day and age. And in the midst of that, it got my mind kind of running through this theme of sin and grace and forgiveness. And so I thought we would just spend some time this morning uh, sort of seeking to understand through God's Word the dynamics of sin. The way it works, the way it does its creepy little thing in our hearts, and the ways in which God has addressed our sin in His Word and through His Son and in the power of His Holy Spirit. And so, uh, to that end, I'm going to read from two different books of the Bible, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And we're going to sort of look at this uh, first occurrence of sin, the, the first entry of sin into the human condition. And we're going to just sort of spend some time looking at, at how that works and what our native reactions are to sin. And then we're going to jump to uh, the book of Colossians in the New Testament and take a look at, at some of the things the Apostle Paul has to say about the way Christ, in a way, undoes the consequences of our sin. And or we'll, we'll phrase that better when we get into this a little further. So, to that end, let's start in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. And, you know, it, it, it always amazes me when I go back to this passage how honest and raw and true uh, this account is of the way our hearts work. See if you don't uh, find yourself in agreement with that as we read. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, this woman that you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. I was discussing this passage with Mark last night, and he reminded me that a a pastor that we both uh, were under in Houston used to say, what was it? Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the snake. And the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Yeah, cheesy pastor humor. Love it. So, there is, there is this primordial glimpse into the nature of our hearts in reaction to the sin that is now so much a part of our reality. And what I want to sort of take you into next, and we're going to do this in a typical Pastor Tom kind of way. Uh, it's going to be a little bit backwards. I'm going to read the second part of this chapter first and then go back and read the first part of this chapter. Um, but this question of how does God deal with our sin how does he take this question up and make progress in our crazy hearts in relation to our sin? And so we're going to be in the book of Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read first verses 20 through 23, and then I will jump backwards and read verses 13 through 15. If with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, basically stating some of the ways we try to control sin in our own lives. We we heap up our own little barriers, our own little uh, rules and regulations, don't do this, make sure you do this, uh, don't forget this, and that sort of thing, to try and make our lives safer and prevent ourselves from committing the sins that we know we should not enter into. And Paul comes to the conclusion in this passage uh, that looks great. You look really busy 
And you may even look like you... Hmm, another wasp, Smitty. Right, there we go. All right. We need to sell this place. I'm just saying. <laughs> so... Paul essentially says, we, we will try all of these things to control our sinful hearts, but at the end of the day, self-control or self-regulation has no real impact on our sinful indulgence. Like, we cannot stop the flood of our own sin in our own efforts. Rather, uh, despairing comment or passage in that sense But let's jump backwards to some words that Paul had just uh, uttered and see how he says sin can be dealt with. In Colossians, the same chapter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this idea that sin is ultimately conquered on the cross, that this is the place where the dynamics of our sinful hearts are brought to a, a conclusion that says you are forgiven, you are loved, you are covered. So, again, I was, I was sort of hashing some of this out last night with uh, Mark and Matt who were here with us this weekend. And so here's what we came up with. Well, sort of. So for the sake of analogy, sin, our sin is like gravity. It is a constant. It's a constant in our reality. Um, It seems as though uh, everything is always pulling us down. There's always weight of our sin in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, etc. And that has a a weighty effect, a heavy impact on us over time. And ultimately, if, if you know, we, we, we sort of Every day we get out of bed and sort of push against gravity, right? We, we try to not let us, let, not let it keep us down, but eventually, um, that plays out. Gravity's still there. We're not. There you go. Um, gravity, as far as forces that exist in our universe, and I'm, I'm thinking physics here, is actually considered a fairly weak force. Uh, an example of a more powerful force would be that of the forces that hold atoms together. If you can release that force, uh, a great bit of energy transpires. If you could release it, 
I don't know, in a controlled way, you could conceivably lift yourself out of the influence of gravity with that higher, stronger force. You could get beyond the daily pull by utilizing some force that's greater than gravity. And this is the idea that we want to sort of come to Christ with in this question. How do we get past the pull of sin on our lives? The answer is we need a force that is greater than the force of sin. And thankfully, sin is not the most powerful force in the universe. There is one that is far greater, far stronger, far more important. And so I want us to look at the two sides of this question, the dynamics of sin. And first, I want us to know and understand that our native response or our native responses to sin, this was all sort of laid out in that Genesis passage. Uh, There's some beautiful interaction between the serpent and Eve where her sin is pre-justified. We rationalize what we're about to do, right? And uh, the the like, if you're if you're studying uh, espionage and counter-espionage, the serpent pretty good. He starts by feeding her misinformation, a question that's just slightly off, and he knows it. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He's baiting, and he's trying to find out what she knows, and more importantly, how committed she is to this truth that she knows. And so he feeds her this misinformation. She engages in this conversation, and through this, she concludes that the potential damage of this sin is minimal. Well, we do this before we sin, we minimize in our own minds the potential damage of what we're about to do. Oh, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. This won't, this won't affect anyone. Uh, this won't hurt anyone. It's just a small sin. Right? And we sort of figure out ahead of time what we think the collateral damage won't be, and we make our choices. And not only do we see Eve sort of minimizing the potential damage, but we also see the serpent helping her to maximize the potential benefits. This will be great. Think about it. And this is, in my never-so-humble opinion, the ultimate temptation is, is set before her. Did you hear it? You will be like God. Whoa. So essentially, what, what the deceiver is saying to her is, you can be your own God. You can know good from evil. You can determine what's right and what's wrong. Um, can we just agree that's not a really good idea for me to determine what's right and what's wrong? and for you to determine what's right and what's wrong. And not only is it a bad idea, but it's a pretty good recipe for uh, what's the opposite of harmony. 
Disaster, thank you. All right? Because then, if all of us are our own gods, then who's to say that what I think is right is wrong, and who's to say that what I think is wrong is right? Uh, This is crazy. This is the ultimate temptation that is set before her, and I think it's common to all of us. We can be self-determining in the realm of moral right and wrong. We can be like God. So, this is played in such a way by the serpent and then by Eve. It's picked up and sort of looked at from a, hey, this would be neat. This would be interesting. This would be great. Without ever stopping to really assess the full potential damage and the lack of benefit that would ensue, we pre-justify our sin the same way Eve did. When we do sin, we then avoid the shame of our sin. The avoidance of shame is a multi-trillion dollar business. Uh, it's a conglomeration of businesses. We all do this. We all will spend money to cover our shame, to not be uh, noticed for who we are. This is awesome. Got a wasp flying around. Nobody's sleeping today. there's something you can spray on a wasp nest to make it increase in number it's like all right um avoiding shame the behavior of covering adam and eve first thing they do they find some some fig leaves they cover themselves they cover their shame uh the thought (laughs) when we sin the thought of someone else uncovering that and seeing us in our shame. Got it? Yeah! And everyone cheered that one of God's creatures was killed. This is... This is, we are not Hindus. It is blatantly obvious. This is not Hinduism 101. All right. Very good. Thank you. All right. I've never had anyone cheer during a sermon before. That was, that was kind of a rush. I know you weren't cheering for me, but hey. All right. The covering of our shame and the thought of some other person peeling back that veneer and seeing us in our shame. Inconceivable! To quote the Princess Bride. All right. The covering and the hiding, that tendency to just not want to be seen. We avoid the shame of our sin. We shift blame away from ourselves as Randon so well articulated in the children's chat onto whomever is most convenient. 
even if it's the person that's closest and dearest to us. Um, yeah. Do I need to get into the whole marriage thing here and the way that my wife says that I will always... That's where I go first, is to try to... But you... Boom. Right? Instead of, you're right, and it doesn't matter what you said or did or didn't say or didn't do, I'm still responsible for what I say and do. But that's not my native response. It's to cast blame. And we even go to extremes in this sense. I think I think Adam's pointing of the finger to Eve is sort of refreshingly true. But then when he turns the other hand and points at God himself, it's like, whoa, dude, <laughs> you are desperate. Um, this woman that you gave to me. And uh, what's that? She started it. That's right. Exactly. Um, this is the honest, straightforward articulation of the dynamics of sin. Nobody likes their sin to be found out. And nobody likes to natively take responsibility for their sin. There's always some extenuating or extenuating circumstance. See what I did there? Extenuating. You like that? No, you probably didn't. It's just cheesy. So I'll keep going. To know our native responses, to understand that is healthy. But to know the forces that combat sin is even more important. So we'll take up that later passage that we read first from Paul's book, or letter to the the church in Colossae. Human resolve has no lasting power. This is why you will never come in here on the first Sunday in January and hear me say, let's talk about our New Year's resolutions. Human resolve is a very weak force. Um, it will not get us beyond the pull of gravity. Human resolve is sort of like our physical strength. I can stand up, and that's about as far as I'm going to get from the pull of gravity. We try. We try really hard. And we try in ways that look really spiritual. We, we do this. Paul reminds us of this tendency. And our resolve is unbelievably appealing to us, almost beyond comprehension in its level of appeal, because it gives us a semblance of control. I, do they still have bookstores? Is there like a Barnes & Noble around here somewhere? No one goes there anymore. But if you did, the largest section of books in the bookstore, do you know what it is? Self-help. Five ways to this. Ten steps to that. How to not fall asleep while you listen to your pastor. Unleash, unleash the wasp. 
I read the book. Just don't let it anywhere near Pebby. People be sleeping all over the place. This tendency that we have to try and conquer our own sin. So, let me, let me, try, to, let me try to clear this up a little bit. Standing up is good, right? It's healthy. Moving around is healthy. We, we want to exercise our muscles. We want to exercise our our wills as human beings. We want those to become in line with God's will, right? And so it's not a bad thing to take steps to avoid sin, but when we think that we are the God over these things and that we have the strength to overcome gravity, we're deceiving ourselves. We need a force that is greater than what is native in our hearts if we are to overcome the power of sin. All right. So, unbelievably appealing, this human resolve or this tendency towards human resolve, and ultimately ineffective. Like, me jumping to overcome gravity. Nobody wants to see that. Right? Okay. Human resolve, if it has no lasting power, where do we turn? To the cross of Christ where we find eternal power. Paul reminds us that on the cross, Jesus offering his life takes us from the place of spiritual death to life. God did say to Adam and apparently to Eve, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Jesus said, that's on me. I'll take that. Let her go. I've got this. And so we find this transformation from death to life on the cross. There we also find that he brings us from the state of guilty to the state of forgiven, Paul tells us. That we are covered. We don't have to cover ourselves. We're covered by the blood of the Lamb. He brings us from death to life, from being guilty to being forgiven. And he brings us from defeat to victory. Verse 15 of Colossians chapter 2 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, that is Christ. Christ triumphs over all of these other forces that work against the health and well-being and life of our souls. He gives us grace and forgiveness eternal. And so, how do I say this? If, if you are like all of us, um, and you are, you feel trapped by your sin, 
That's the way sin works. We, we hide, we withdraw, we cover, we deny, we blame, we, we back ourselves into a corner. And there we feel very alone and ashamed and unworthy. We need each other to point us back to the cross, to help us see the light of God's love again. You don't have to be there alone. You don't have to be there for long. You can be loved and forgiven. You are loved and forgiven. And you can find in the fellowship of safe people, you can find help and connection and hope for a future where you are tapped into a power that has, in fact, overcome the pull of sin. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for his sacrifice, that his death brings us life, that his righteousness is extended to us and we are taken from a state of guilt and shame into a state of forgiveness and grace because of what he has done for us. Father, help us to live in the strength of that truth, to relate to each other as people of grace, to lift our heads and see the power of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, and to know that it is your love through Christ which is actually the greatest force in the universe. This we pray in his name. Amen.